Uh, sometimes, sometimes, not very often, you, you have a moment in life where you know in that precise moment that what you're experiencing is profound. Uh, most of the time, you don't realize that's going on. In fact, you can look back at some of the biggest events that have ever happened in your life and recognize, I didn't know that's what that meant when that happened. For instance, my first day on the job at Henderson Hills Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, my boss said, hey, Derek, I want to introduce you to Julie Jenkins. I did not know that what he was really saying to me is, hey, Derek, I want to introduce you to your wife. But that happened. I, I did not realize how profound that moment was. I was interested, but I didn't realize how profound that moment was. But there are some moments in life when uh, the Lord just kind of inserts himself into the processes and says, this right now, this thing that you're experiencing is important. You need to remember this. And one of those moments happened for me actually just a, a few months after I met Julie. The pastor of our church invited an old retired preacher to speak in one of our services. Now, I was at the age where, frankly, I thought anybody over the age of 60 looked like they were 150 years old, so I don't really know how old uh, this preacher was, but my guess is he was pretty deep into his 80s. And there was just a weight of a lifetime of having been with the Lord that was obvious on him as he kind of shuffled his way to the pulpit for that service and started to preach. There was, there was a humble power in how he carried himself. There was a depth in what he was saying. I do not remember for the life of me this man's name, but I do remember thinking, I want to be like that when I'm in my 80s. And I remember being impressed by the Lord there in that pew with these words, if so, if that's really what you want, you've got to start right now. Now, I don't know how well I've done in that effort, but I will never forget that moment and what it taught me. If you've had any kind of leadership class formally, even informally, or business training, you've read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. The, the, the second of those habits is begin with the end in mind. And that is where we are starting today. If you want to have a life that is lived well, if you want people to look at you and think, man, I hope that I have lived for the Lord like that when I am their age, then the planning for that starts right now, wherever now is for you. It starts right now. And so with all of that in mind, if you would please find Romans 15 in your copy of God's Word, Romans 15. Now, here's the deal. Uh, the, the instruction, for the most part, the formal instruction of Romans stops in Romans 15, 13. Uh, beginning in Romans 15, 14, Paul, the author of the book, uh, rounds out the rest of chapter 15 with some personal remarks, which we're going to look at. And then uh, there are personal greetings that close the book next week, which will be our last message uh, without a summary anyway from the book of Romans. These personal remarks, though, that round out Romans 15, I think give us a moment that we can have collectively together like I had 33 years ago watching that man 
come to the pulpit. I think we're going to see in these words a man whose life is being well lived, a man whose life bears evidence of having been with the Lord, a man who carries himself with a humble power, a man whose words have depth. We're going to look at Paul's life, and I think we are going to, as we do, have the Lord say to us, this is important. You need to pay attention to this, learn from this. And if we'll learn from it, there are really just two things that we're going to see that I think might be transformative for us. First, this, build a gospel-centered life. I'm going to say it again because those words need to stick. Build a gospel-centered life. Now, with those words in your mind, look at verse 14 of Romans 15. I myself, Paul speaking, am satisfied about you, the church at Rome, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So he begins this wrap-up by saying, I'm going to encourage you, Roman church. I mean, you've got it going on. I see in you all the evidence I need to see of people who are genuinely, faithfully living for Jesus Christ. I see in you all the evidence I need to see of people who are capable of teaching other people what it means to genuinely follow Christ. I have had to write to you boldly on a few instances about some things you don't need to lose sight of, and now he's going to tell us why he had to do that. Look at the last part of verse 15. He says, because I've written to you these things because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's easy for those words to just wash over us, for them to just roll over us. But what he's saying here is that I need you to hear my conviction. I need you to hear my life's purpose. I need to hear, have you hear what makes my life tick, the driving force of my life, Paul is saying. And the reason I've written to you is because I want the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to know about Jesus so their lives through Christ and his sacrifice can be acceptable to God when they meet him one day. That was the evidence, that was the, the engine that drove his life. That's what, that's what got him up in the morning. That's what kept him up late at night. It was to make the gospel known to these people. And because Paul's like this, he says, if you doubt me at all, let me give you 55 reasons that this is true. And so look at verse 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ Jesus accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles, remember, that's his life purpose, to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Alilacrim, and you say, what? Where's that? Just It's a place you can't find on a map, uh, honestly, but it's... I mean, you could, but you'd have to know where to look. And just trust me, it's there. But he's talking about all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Eastern Europe. This is what he's talking about. I have done the gospel work from Jerusalem all the way to Eastern Europe. So in all of these places, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel 
of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's entire life, this is what he's telling us, has been spent making the gospel of Jesus known. And this was done because the gospel of Jesus was at the very center of his life. His life was a planet that orbited a gospel sun. It provided for him his balance in an unsettled world. He lived a gospel-centered life. And in these verses we've just read, he's just giving us evidence that that indeed was the case. The average American Christian has never shared the gospel of Jesus with another person and led them to faith in Christ outside of a member of their own family. That's normal for American Christians. But I get, I think that we all understand that should not be normal. And I've spent a large portion of my life because of my vocation wondering why that is, wondering why we can sing and pray and soak God's Word the way we do on Sunday morning and think of ourselves as being deeply committed followers of Jesus as we do and then never speak of Jesus to someone that needs to hear about him the rest of the week and maybe never talk about him or use his name at all other than to bless food quickly until we get back together again the next Sunday. And I finally settled on the fact that the reason for this has to do with our approach being fundamentally different than what we've just seen in Paul's life. For us, the gospel tends to be treated as a component of our lives. Here's what I mean. We view ourselves as fundamentally defined by our relationships. We are husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children of, or by our vocation. I'm an engineer. I'm a homemaker. I'm a business person. Or by our tribe. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Chiefs fan. The gospel is important to us, but usually only to the extent that it enhances or optimizes our fundamental essence, what what we believe our true identity to be as husbands, as homemakers, as chief fans. And because it exists as an enhancement and not the essence of our lives, we don't talk about Jesus. We don't talk about the gospel any more than we would, say, talk about the kind of car we drive or the kind of toothpaste we use. Those things are important to us. We use them daily, but they're only tools that help us to become better versions of what we really hope to be. But for Paul, the gospel was what he hoped to be. It wasn't a part of his life. It was the center of of his life. There were other aspects to Paul's life. For instance, we know from Scripture he was a tent maker, which was the vocation that he used sometimes when he went to new communities where the gospel needed to be heard to support himself. But it wasn't the essence of who he was. 
His identity was not as a tent maker, which is the exact opposite of how modern Christians tend to view their faith. And so sharing the gospel was a, a product of Paul's essence and not uh, an occasional conversation about an important life enhancement that he had come across. But now I suspect that there are a few of you thinking, yeah, well, of course Paul would do that. He was in some way like you, Pastor Derek, or like Pastor John, or like Pastor Jonathan. He's called a vocational ministry. I have a different calling. I'm not called a vocational ministry. I'm called to be a normal person. So that gets me off the hook. Well, not so fast. In Acts 8, we learn that after the execution of a man named Stephen for his faith, persecution broke out in the city of Jerusalem, forcing Christians in Jerusalem to run for their lives, normal people to run for their lives. And I want you to listen to what Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says of these normal people as they fled. Now those normal people, you can insert that in your head, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Preaching the word. Did you catch that? Normal, everyday people. Not religious professionals on a missionary enterprise. Normal people living their lives. Spread the gospel wherever it was that they happened to find themselves. Why? Because it wasn't just religious professionals who lived gospel-centered lives. The people of God in Jerusalem in the first century lived gospel-centered lives. They were husbands, and they were fathers, and they were wives, and they were mothers, and they were children, and they were tent makers. And I'm sure in the first century, there were a few even then chiefs fans who went about their lives to talk about what was most important to them, the essence of their identity, and used those other aspects of their lives, their roles in the home, their vocation, as the platform from which they shared the gospel, which was what was most important to them. For this to become the reality in our lives will require that we fundamentally, as American Christians, rethink how we view our lives. It requires us to no longer define ourselves by our roles as husbands or wives or mothers or fathers or children or as tends to happen out here in the suburbs as the parent of a child who plays football or baseball or soccer. And it will require us to define ourselves by what is central, by what is important, our faith in Jesus. And it will require us to equip our families to do the same. It will require us to rethink our lives and understand that what must be central is the gospel. And you simply cannot do this checking into church once a week or once a month or by scrolling Christian Twitter or Instagram for a few hours every day. We'll need to adopt a mindset of the psalmist in Psalm 130. I read this the day I was writing this message as a part of my devotion. It just resonated with me. Here's what he wrote. I wait for the Lord. 
my soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Do you hear the conviction, the absolute certainty of their life's purpose? Their longing for the Lord took over their whole being, and he sought the Lord with the same intensity that a night watchman of a city from whom danger could come at any moment from the dark looked over the horizon, peering for the first glimpse of light, of dawn, of hope. That's what makes the difference between being someone who adds the gospel to their life and being someone for whom the gospel is at their very core. And this is the aspect of my life, of my walk with Jesus, that I wrestle with the most now. Being on sabbatical last fall gave me an opportunity for six weeks to be someone I had never been in 35 years, and that was just Derek. I hadn't been just Derek since I was 20 years old. And it showed me how intertwined my faith was with my vocation. And it alerted me to the fact that in now a little less than 10 years, I'll transition from being Derek the pastor to being just Derek permanently. So the bulk of my daily walk with Jesus right now is focused on making sure that my calling as a pastor is an outworking of my faith, of the center of my life in the gospel, and not the other way around. Now, to fix this, I've got no pithy advice. I've got no three easy steps. I simply call you to the hard work of seeing how easy it is to think of the gospel as an enhancement to our lives and not something that takes over and is at the very center. I simply call us all to spend time with Jesus in his word every day and time throughout the day in conversation with the Lord in prayer. And as we all do that, the gospel will move from the edges of our lives to the very center without us even realizing it. And without us even realizing it, we'll find ourselves naturally talking to neighbors and coworkers and friends about the faith, which is really finally come to define everything there is about us. When I got to this portion of my sermon prep, I I remembered something that uh, a friend of mine had uh, posted on Instagram uh, a few days before, but because of how Instagram, it just disappeared. And so I texted him. I said, hey, can can you tell me what it was you said? And he said, yeah. And so I want to share this with you. First of all, you need to understand that my friend was a pastor for years, but two years ago, he began working for an interfaith group that seeks to build bridges across faith communities. And here's what he wrote that really stood out to me and came to mind when I was writing this message. He said, as a pastor, I talked a lot about sharing my faith, and I shared it as often as possible. But when I started developing real relationships outside of my church with people who didn't agree with me, my opportunities to share my faith exponentially multiplied. And he says, one key to sharing my faith regularly, though, has been to invite others to share their faith with me. I love 
hearing people's stories. I've said for a long time, the vast majority of people in the world don't find conversations about faith or religion unusual. And I get that a lot of people think, well, no, it's off limits. It's not true. Last night, I went to a concert. Honestly, I could have been the grandparent for almost anybody there, but I like the music. And the music has lyrical content that ask big questions and ask faith questions, not in a hopeful way, in a very cynical way, but, I mean, 18,000 people were singing along to someone's faith story. We do live in a world where people are comfortable in talking about these things. And Micah goes on to say, uh, my friend Micah says, I also found that when I took interest in other people, people who disagreed with me, sharing my faith and my life became very natural, not forced, not programmatic. It became a normal part of conversation between friends. It's been my experience that people will welcome the opportunity, he says, to hear about your life and your faith if you treat them with respect. Now, here's the deal. Micah, my friend, is an example of a person who was a pastor, for crying out loud, who made the gospel his essence, and it exploded his eternal influence. If you want to live your life well, you've got to root it and direct it towards what matters. And there's only one thing that matters, Jesus and making him known. Your life can't really count if that's not at the core of who you are. If you want to live your life well, build a gospel-centered life. And then this, build a church-connected church-connected life. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I, and he'll go on in a minute to talk about some other things. Paul's just expounding on what he just said. He said, you know, my goal is to make Jesus known, and there are now lots of people in my region that can make Jesus known to the Gentiles. I am wanting to go someplace to make him known more broadly, and he goes into more depth here. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. He's saying, you know, everybody from Jerusalem to Eastern Europe is hearing the gospel. There are people there that can do that. No one has taken it to Western Europe. I want to do that. That means I need to come through Rome, and I'm hoping you can help me. And subtly, what he is telling us is that Paul needed Christians, the church in Rome, people whom he had never met. Let's keep that in mind as we keep reading. Look at verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered them to you what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of life. So Paul is saying, I will come to Rome because I need you. I need you, church. After I have, have delivered this financial gift which has been raised because I told 
Christians who had never met Christians in Jerusalem, that they're all part of one body and their need was your need. After I've done that, then I will come to Rome. And what he's telling us there is that he's been telling Christians that they need other Christians. They need the church. Keep that in mind. Now look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He was in a dicey situation or headed into a dicey situation at this time. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Once again, Paul says to the Roman believers, who he's never met personally, that in order for him to effectively do the work that God has called him to, to live out his gospel-centered life, he needed them. So what is Paul saying to us in these 11 verses, which would be easy for us to blow through? He's saying that if you want your life to matter, if you want to keep the fires burning for that gospel-centered life, your only hope of doing so is being lashed to other believers in Jesus to live a church-connected life. You need the church in order to live a gospel-centered life, a life that will matter. In this room, in the 8 o'clock service as well, there were people I was looking at that were either contemplating college life or actually getting ready to leave for college life. It caused me to reflect on uh, my time with our two kids when they got ready to go to college and the speech I, I gave them. Can you, first of all, just side note, can you imagine what it would be like to have a pastor and a principal as your two parents? Can, can, can you imagine the speeches that our children had to endure. God bless them. And then they got married, which from my perspective just expanded my audience. And so now they get to hear my speeches. I mean, they've blessed my kid's heart. I digress. But I remember leaning in to something they'd heard their whole lives. I told them that the home they grew up in was not the product of dad's vocation that we would be just this committed to church, we would be just this involved if dad sold insurance. And the reason that you are like you are now is because you've been a part of a church family that has loved you and invested in you. And when you get yourself to Pella, Iowa or St. Paul, Minnesota, you find yourself a local church because if you don't, your faith will start to fall off a cliff. And by God's grace, they locked themselves in. And they have families now who are locked in. You cannot be effective as a Christian and disconnected from the church. I didn't say that you can be a Christian and be marginal or non-existent in your church attendance. I said you can't be good at it. You can't be effective you can't fulfill your purpose if you are not locked into the local church. I'll, I'll never forget Dr. Charles Kelly, who was the president in Orland Seminary at the time, saying to our trustee board, on which I sat at the time, about the incredible internal conflict he felt when in the late 90s he signed the contract to bring 
internet connectivity to the entire seminary campus. He knew he needed to do it. He could see it coming. He understood that you could not be an effective institution of higher learning unless you had internet access. And he knew that because sometimes you need to stay at home, it needed to come to the home. So he said, I know I need to do this. But in signing that, he said, I also knew that I was signing a death certificate on some families. And I was writing disqualified across some young men's lives because the internet would be the vehicle that brought porn in and destroy them. He said, I know I needed to do it. I couldn't get around doing it, but I knew that there would be consequences. And I had similar thoughts on March 15, 2020. I knew that by making the move to online worship during the stay-at-home order, there would be some people who would never be back or would not be back consistently. They would convince themselves that online is just as good as in person or that being online was an adequate replacement if you just woke up one Sunday morning and, you know, you, know, you just weren't feeling it. You wanted to stay home. I knew we needed to go online remotely. I knew we needed to do that. But I knew there'd be casualties. Bottom line is this. If Paul believed he needed connection with other believers, Paul believed he needed connection with other believers, and that other believers needed connection with other believers, why are any of us any different? Far too many have come to believe that they can be just as faithful following Jesus on their own, doing their own thing online, as they can be as if they're with the church. That's a lie. It's a lie that is growing like wildfire in American Christianity. A study came across my desk this week where in the survey they said, do you consider yourself to be a committed follower of Jesus? Of the people who answered yes, they then asked this question. Do you go to church more than once a month? I'm a committed follower of Jesus. Do you go to church more than once a month? Here's how they answered. The oldest among us, the greatest generation, had the highest percentage above 50% that said, yeah, I'm committed and I go to church more than once a month. Boomers, dead even 50%. I'm a committed follower of Jesus, but I only go to church once a month, if that. And then it just fell off the cliff. It just fell off the cliff. We believe as American Christians that we can be successful in our faith without going to church. And Satan is cackling at that. You can be a Christian and not go to church. You can't be good at it. It can't bring you life. It can't bring you joy. It can't bring you grounding. It can't build weight and heft into your life so that when people see you, when you're 80 years old, say, that's someone I need to pay attention to. It just can't. It won't do that. Your life will be a poor reflection of what it is meant to be if you're not deeply connected to the local church. So if you're watching me online today and it's not for a medical reason, I'll see you next Sunday. But if you're here... Ask yourself if you're really here. Ask yourself if you're really here. 
Are you a consumer of church product weekly-ish? Or are you building your life here? Are you putting around you the things that are necessary to build weight and heft and power into your life? Are you in a small group, which for us is Sunday school? Are you serving? What is your service at Blue Valley? Are you consistent in even being here? You see, again, you can be here but not be here. So push deeper. There's no such thing as a faithful Christian who is a marginal church member. I've never forgotten that old man who shuffled to the pulpit 33 years ago, and now that I think about it, he may have been 56. I don't know. I'm not certain how much progress I've made toward being the man he was, but I am grateful that I have a pulse and I've still got time. And so I don't care where you are in life's journey. You've still got time. You've still got time to make your life count because you're here. You've got time to reorder your life and not think of yourself by whatever role you play in society or your home and to begin to think of yourself as an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world and begin to look at your entire life as not who you are but a platform to reveal who you are. Let's make sure our life matters.